I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 1, Romans chapter 1. And the brothers have some Bibles. They're going to get make their way to the back. As they go down the aisle, if you need a Bible, just get their attention. And they'll get one of those to you. That is marked at Romans chapter 1. Over the past six months, we've studied the book of Philippians, having concluded this past Sunday. With Easter next week and a guest speaker in three weeks, and then Mother's Day a few weeks after that, I didn't want to start a series through a new book to only have it interrupted right away. So we're going to hold off on starting a series in a a new book of the Bible. Today we begin a three-message series with the three messages scheduled around Easter and the guest speaker uh, in a few weeks. And then when all of that is done, in Mother's Day and an ordination service in May, May the 21st, when all that's done, we'll begin a series in the book of Ecclesiastes on May the 28th. Now, the impetus for this particular three-week topical series, topical, is my observation in now over 35 years of walking with Christ as an adult, after having committed my life to him at age 19, and my observations in over 20 years of pastoral ministry now. In that time, I've observed that many of us know how to become a Christian, but we often don't know how to live like Christians. Many of us have been taught how to be saved, how to be born again, how to be Christians, all the synonyms that the Bible uses to describe us when we initially come to Christ. We know that we must embrace the grace of God in the good news of Jesus Christ, that he paid for our sin, that he has perfectly obeyed God, and we are given what he secured when we but ask. When that happens, we instantly become God's child. And we know that we are to begin living differently. Now, there may have been some very obvious issues in our lives that we know we needed to to get rid of. There may have been habits in which we were engaged that we needed to cease. There may have been speech patterns that we needed to mute because they were unbecoming. We began hanging around with people who had our same experience of having come to Christ. Or perhaps from a child, we grew up in a home and a church where folks had come to Christ and had each changed in particular ways that were observable. There were certain things that we didn't say, like those outside of the group. There were places we didn't go, entertainments we didn't indulge. They were all spoken or unspoken mores of the group, whether your family and or the church. Whether you grew up in that kind of environment or you came to it as an adult, you learned that some things are acceptable and some are unacceptable and you began to abide by them. And happily so. It was good for you as it was for me to change your ways or if you grew up in church, to avoid those ways altogether. I grew up that way. The Pentecostal church that my dad pastored was part of something called the holiness movement. It rightly emphasized that a Christian is different. In fact, the word holy, many of you know, means set apart, different. The list of things that were considered Christian, including things we did regularly, Church for us four times a week. Sometimes revivals that lasted for weeks long with each of the revival services lasting well into the night. Bible reading, prayer, memorization, and so on. It also included a host of things you don't do. Don't dance. Don't go to movies. Women don't wear pants. Don't listen to rock music. Unless it's played backwards at a seminar telling you why you shouldn't listen to rock music. Some of you remember that. You know what I'm talking about. You know you might be a fundamentalist if you've heard more rock music played backward than forward. 
But the truth is, I'm genuinely thankful for the emphasis on holiness, even if many of the particulars were not quite correct. But as we'll see, it could be harmful as well, and was to many. You see, my church that I grew up in also taught you could lose your salvation by what you did or what you failed to do. So many, especially young people in the late 60s and early 70s, were having a hard time towing the line and thus having a hard time staying saved. One man older than me who grew up in that church told me that when he was young, he was told he was going to hell because of what he had done. He reasoned, he told me this recently, he reasoned if he was hopeless, he may as well enjoy what he can. And in fact, he's been doing that his entire life. I was blessed in addition to growing up in a Christian home, I was blessed to attend and graduate from a Baptist school that also emphasized holiness, being different from the world. And it had a lot of rules as well, but it taught rightly, I later discovered, that one could not lose his salvation by what he did or failed to do. But much on the list of do's and don'ts was the same. Attendance at church regularly and often, reading, prayer, memorization, no dancing, no movies, no movies, no music, pretty much. We didn't have the no pants on women thing, but many Baptist churches did and, and still do. Now, as I learned in school about the grace of God in salvation, so that God gives this as a gift that cannot then be forfeited, such that I could not keep it myself or lose it by what I did or failed to do, I was so enamored with that grace, especially given my background, my lose-your-salvation background, that thankfully it never occurred to me that our mostly unwritten holiness code was somehow a way that I maintained my relationship with God. That never occurred to me because I had come out of that. I had come out of the false teaching that my relationship with God is based on what I do, so the rules and regulations were not, at least for me, seen as the basis for my salvation. But some of you come from various legalistic kinds of backgrounds, so you can relate to what I'm saying. You found the gospel of salvation by grace to be liberating, not only at the time of salvation, but also as you live out that salvation day to day. Some of you have never struggled with thinking your relationship with God is based on how well you keep the rules because you were taught better before you came here to CBC or perhaps since you've come here. But I've come to realize that many, many Christians misinterpret the emphasis on holiness. You have grown up in it or you've come to it as adults and so you've dutifully and often happily conformed to the expected norms. So you put away certain bad things, and you habitually practice other good things. And so you're holy in that sense. Different. You religiously serve and attend and give and sing, but you are regularly joyless and angry and bitter and critical. There's a disconnect between your external behavior and your internal peace. And you sense it. And here's why. You've conformed externally, but are not transformed internally. Your critical attitude is toxic. Your thoughts and sometimes words toward others are condescending. Your anger and bitterness boil just beneath the surface, ready to erupt with the right stimulus at home or at work or on the golf course, almost never at church. Your attempts at change have been experiential. You signed commitment cards, you've walked aisles, countless times you raised your hand at the end of a service to turn over yet another spiritual leaf, and nothing works. None of it lasts. You struggle with the same things over and over for years and years. It doesn't last because your decisions to do more of or to be better than or to be like so-and-so, all of them 
treat the symptoms rather than the cause. And the people closest to you see it. If you have children, they see the hypocrisy. The difference between what you are at church and what you are at home. What you're like to their mother or father. They too will grow to be fake. Or they may despise Christianity as fake and drop out altogether. One way you know that you're playing the conformity game. You act a particular way in in certain settings. One way you'll know you're playing that game is when your internal thoughts and attitude do not match your external presentation, especially when you're at church. Or when your external behavior is one thing at church and another at home and at work. Or here's another way to gauge that. When you're resentful about your situation. Because behind every resentment is a sense of entitlement. You see, this is one of the many dangers to the conformity approach to our relationship with God. It often creates an expectation of reward. I do the stuff so things should go reasonably well. So make no mistake, if you're resentful about your situation, it's because deep down you believe you deserve better. And that's the opposite of grace-centered thinking. You remember what grace is, right? Undeserved favor from God. But the performance treadmill that is the conformity approach says, I've performed, so, I've performed God, so now where's the payoff? And because the payoff hasn't happened as expected, then you seethe with resentment. We have issues, don't we? Or at least we know people who have issues. We'll say it that way. You all have a friend who has an issue. We have issues. The good news is God has the solution. And this morning we begin a three-week series titled Grace-Centered Living. So let's ask God to help us as we begin that. Father, thank you in your grace, for gathering us, for moving in our lives somehow through someone such that we're here. Lord, not all of us are here because our hearts are drawn. Some of us are here just because it's the thing to do. Lord, we do not want to be like you have said so many times in your word of your people who offer with their lips, but their hearts are far from you. So, Lord, we need our hearts to be changed. We need our hearts to be transformed, to be renewed. And only you can do that. So we ask you today, Lord, to begin that process anew in some for the first time in others. And help us in these three weeks to see how it is you do that in your grace for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if we struggle with the same things over and over, and the problem is that we've been treating the symptoms rather than the disease, then what do we do? Well, we have an outline inserted in your program, as we do each week. If you haven't taken that out yet, I encourage you to do so now and follow along. And as we go through these, I want to acknowledge my indebtedness to Tim Keller and his book, Gospel in Life for some of the insights that follow. The first of which is, if we're going to see real change in our lives, we must do this. We must recognize the root. If we're going to see real change in our lives, we must recognize the root. One reason we do not see lasting change in our lives is that we do not uproot the cause. We deal with the surface rather than dealing with the root. It's like pulling up the dandelion instead of digging it up. If you don't get the root, it will be back. Another way of saying it is we need radical change. Radical means root. We need radical change rather than surface change. Those things that are displeasing to the Lord must be eradicated. That is, uprooted. 
This means we have to look beneath the surface of our external behavior to our hearts and what motivates us to think and talk and act as we do. The Bible presents the root problem of our hearts as, believe it or not, a matter of idolatry. Now, don't dismiss that from applying to you, because it does apply to you as it applies to me. We don't see ourselves as idolaters because our definition of idolatry is too narrow. But Scripture presents idolatry as not only making an image and bowing down before it, that's certainly idolatry, but also as anyone or anything that commands ultimate allegiance from us other than God. An idol is anyone or anything we value more than God in any given moment. You'll remember that the Bible teaches that we were originally created to worship and serve God and to rule over all created things in his name. But instead we rejected God and his purpose for us. And when the New Testament summarizes the fall of all humanity into sin, it describes it in terms of idolatry. Romans 1 explains the nature and the power of idolatry. It shows that all of the many breakdowns of life, spiritual, psychological, and social, they all come because we've worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Verse 25 says this, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. An idol is anyone or anything that is more fundamental to you than God. For your happiness, for your meaning, for your identity. Anything more fundamental to you than God for your happiness, for your meaning, for your identity. So I ask you to think to yourself, what is your driving passion? Now, it's hard to really get the, an accurate answer to that just by asking, because most of us will say it's our family or God or other people. But we want to get to the, you know, there's the church answer and there's the real answer. And to get to the real answer, psychologist Alfred Adler says, if you really want to know what matters to most of us, he says, look at your nightmares. And even for those who, like me, don't actually remember our dreams or nightmares, I would say I actually don't dream or have nightmares, but I'm told you do and you just don't remember them. So whichever, I don't actually remember them. But even for people like that, who either don't have them or don't remember them, we still all have things that are our worst nightmare. That is, what thing, if absent, would take away your will to live? What thing or person? That's certainly one of your idols, though. And it's often a good thing. A good thing that's been turned into an ultimate thing. It's been said that a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. For example, if you're engaged and you then break up, it's going to bring grief if you had a good relationship in that engagement. To lose that engagement will naturally be hard. But if that person has become ultimate to you, If they had become the reason you get out of bed, then that good thing has become an ultimate thing. And that breakup will not just be hard, it will be devastating and debilitating. You see, we get captured by the things that enamor us, that become our idols. And they affect us in every way. The prophet Jeremiah said it's no use. I love foreign gods, and I must go after them. That's the voice and language of Israel, and Jeremiah uses it to get across the fact that once we've come to believe that something or someone will make us happy, we must go after it. It's completely captured our hearts. 
The psalmist said this way, said it this way, they worship their idols, which became a snare to them. Ezekiel, their adulterous hearts have turned away from me and they have lusted after, intensely desired after their idols. This is why when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? You remember what he said. He said what what sets our hearts diametrically opposed to idolatry, namely, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Martin Luther rightly said that this commandment is first in priority because all the other commandments flow from it. He said, we never break any other commandment unless we've first broken this one. So whenever we commit an overt sin, breaking one of God's commandments, we're always breaking at least two. The one we broke and the very first one. About loving God, the most priority issue, no other gods before me. For example, consider why we break the ninth commandment against lying. Why do you lie? If I were to ask you, why do you lie? Or you ask me, why do I lie? Well, one right answer, but too general, would be because I'm a sinner. Okay, but why do you, why did I lie in this instant and not in that one? Luther says because there's something more important to you than Jesus Christ at that moment. At that particular moment, You lied because something, your reputation, being approved by others, something captured your heart more than Jesus Christ at that moment. So it could be approval or money or power or comfort. There's something that's so important to you at that moment that you're willing to lie to get it or maintain it. You lie because there's an idol of approval or money or power or comfort. Under every behavioral sin is an act of idolatry. And under every act of idolatry is a failure to believe truth about God or about ourselves. Behind every behavioral act of sin, there is an act of idolatry. And uh, idolatry, and underneath every act of idolatry is a failure to believe truth the truth about God or ourselves. In other words, idolatry is a result of failing to believe the good news about God and the bad news about ourselves. You see, all the news about God is good. The news about us is is bad. But God has good news for these bad people. Thanks be to God. So idolatry is a result of failing to believe the good news about God, the bad news about ourselves, which is to say it's failure to believe the gospel. Because isn't that what the gospel is? There's the bad news and there's the good news. The bad news is we're us. And the good news is God is as he is. And he's done what he's done. So in psychological terms, an idol is where you get your identity. It's where I get what makes me feel purposeful and meaningful. In theological terms, it's where you get your righteousness. That is, an idol is what helps me meet the standard, whatever standard that may be. You see, you wouldn't feel you have to lie. Hear this. You wouldn't feel you would have to lie if you were comfortable in your identity in Christ. You wouldn't feel that you had to lie if you were secure in the fact that Christ has given you his righteousness so you don't have to make yourself look better than you are. So how does your heart, your individual heart, resist these truths then about God and about ourselves? What particular and characteristic ways Does your heart resist the gospel, the truth about who God is and who we are? You see, unless we apply those truths to the root of our hearts, then we'll never change. 
Now you see on your outline, I have this thing that says life only has meaning or I only have worth if, and you fill in the blank. Well, everybody's blank there will be different. And then you may need an extra sheet of paper. You can put it on the back. Because most of us don't have just one idol, but we have, we have many. But let me give you some examples. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. That's power idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I am loved and respected by. And there may be some person or person's names you've got to put in there. That's approval idolatry. I've got to have the approval and the love and the affection of fill in the blank. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life. That's comfort idolatry. Or life only has meaning, I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of whatever that area is. That's control idolatry. The list could be very long about the kinds of idols that we can manufacture in our hearts. That's just four examples. And, And here's how you can diagnose the root of what's going on with you. You can look at some of the emotions, false, sinful emotions that you regularly express and experience. And then tie those back to what's going on at the root. For example, if you seek power, that is, you seek success, you seek winning. You know, you're, you're, a, you're, you're a, mini, a mini Donald Trump. Just winning. We're just going to win all the time. You'll just win so much. You'll just ask the president. He said this. You'll just ask me, President, we're winning too much. Can we just stop winning? I'm just tired of winning already. He's only two months in and I'm just tired of winning. You're a mini Donald Trump. Power, success, winning, influence. So what's going to be your worst nightmare? That's to be humiliated, to be shamed, to not win. People around you feel a particular way. They feel used because they're stepping stones to get what you want. And what emotion will be prominent with you? Anger. Because when someone or something gets in the way of that winning, that success, if you seek the idol of approval, the affirmation, the love of other people in your relationships, then your worst nightmare is going to be rejection. And you'll do what you need to do in order to fit in and not be rejected. People around you feel smothered. And the emotion that you feel regularly is cowardice. Afraid. You're afraid you're going to be rejected. You're afraid to speak up. You're afraid to tell the truth when it's warranted. If you seek comfort, comfortable life, no stress, freedom, privacy, your worst nightmare is stress or demands being placed on you. You want to be carefree. The people around you then will often feel neglected. And your presenting emotion will be boredom. And if you seek control, that is, to be self-disciplined, to have certainty, to make sure that standards are being met, most often your own, then your worst nightmare is any kind of uncertainty. Around you, those who don't measure up feel condemned. And that prominent emotion is worry for you. You can trace back those emotions. Anger, cowardice, boredom, worry. To the root. So you need to do the work. I need to do the work. Thinking to yourself, what is to be filled in that blank? If only I had. 
Life would have meaning and I would have worth if fill in the blank. If we're going to experience lasting change, we must recognize the root. And I say in your outline, having recognized it, we must reject it with repentance. Reject it with repentance. Now, many of you know the biblical definition of repentance. It's literally to change one's mind. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. But change of mind about what? Well, since idolatry is false belief about God and or ourselves, then we need to change our thinking about who the Lord is and who we are in relation to him. We need to repent. We need to change our thinking about God and about ourselves. That's another way of saying we start thinking in ways that are consistent with the gospel regarding who God is and who we are. This year is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. October 31 of this year, 500 years. Since Martin Luther set off the Reformation by nailing the 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. The very first of those 95 theses stated this. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. It's the first one. Now that sounds very negative, but Luther didn't intend it that way. He's not saying that Christians won't make much progress in life. Instead, he was saying that repentance is the way that we make progress in the Christian life. That true, all of life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and surely into becoming like Jesus. So if we're going to recognize the root problem, which is the idols that have captured our hearts, and then reject it with repentance, we've got to know what real repentance is. Because there's the religious style repentance, and then there's biblical repentance. And they're often not the same thing. There are two different ways to go about repentance, religious type or biblical gospel repentance. In religion, the purpose of repentance is basically to keep God happy so he'll continue to bless us and answer our prayers. So in religion, we're sorry for sin because of its consequences. Sin will bring us punishment and we want to avoid that and so we repent. But biblical repentance tells us that as Christians, sin can't ultimately bring condemnation. Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The main problem with sin after we're Christians is what it does to God. It displeases and dishonors him. So in the religious approach, repentance is self-centered, what it does to me. The consequences. In biblical repentance, it makes God central. In religion, we're mainly sorry for the consequences, but in biblical repentance, we are sorry for the sin itself. And that's why 2 Corinthians chapter 7 differentiates between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. One that leads to repentance, the other that leads to continuing death. In addition, religious repentance can easily turn into an attempt to atone for our sin. As we try to convince God, we try to convince ourselves that we're so truly miserable and regretful that now we deserve to be forgiven. But in Scripture, in the beauty of the gospel, we know that Jesus has suffered for our sin. We don't have to make ourselves suffer to merit God's forgiveness. We simply receive God's forgiveness that's been earned for us, thanks be to God, by Christ. In religion, our only hope is to live a life good enough to require God to bless us. So every instance of sin and repentance is traumatic. It's unnatural. It's threatening. It's only under great pressure that religious people admit that they've sinned. Because their only hope is their moral goodness. 
In the gospel, the knowledge of our acceptance in Christ makes it easier to admit that we're messed up. Because we know we're not going to be cast off if we confess the true depths of our sinfulness. Our hope is in Christ's righteousness, not our own. So it's not as traumatic to admit our weaknesses and our lapses. You guys hear that? So it means, as you've heard me say a bunch of times over the years, I don't have to cover it because Jesus has covered it. I don't have to act like I've got it all together. Jesus had to die because we don't have it all together. So in religion, we try to repent as little as possible. But the more we understand that we are accepted and loved in the beloved one, in Christ, the more and more often we will be willing to acknowledge where our hearts are and repent. Although there is some sorrow and bitterness in any repentance, in true repentance that understands our place in Christ, there's ultimately sweetness. And that creates a completely different dynamic for growing in the Lord. The more we see our own flaws and sins, the more precious and amazing God's grace appears to us. But on the other hand, the more aware we are of God's grace and our acceptance in Christ, the more able we are to drop the denials and self-defense and admit the true dimensions of what our sin has done to us. George Whitfield, the 18th century Methodist preacher, wrote this on repentance. God, give me a deep humility, a well-guided zeal, a burning love, and a single eye. Give me all of those, and then let men or devils do their worst. Lord, if I can have all of that, I'm good to go. Give me deep humility, a well-guided zeal, burning love, and a singular eye. And those four things that Whitfield talked about are what are next in your outline. That true repentance involves deep humility. Do you find yourself looking down on other people? I'm not looking for answers just internally. It's rhetorical. But answer to yourself. Do you find yourself doing that? What's wrong with those people? Why can't they get it together? Have you been stung when someone criticizes you? When someone criticizes you, you can't take it because you somehow haven't met a standard. You haven't gotten their approval. You think more highly of yourself than you should, and therefore it stings more than it should. Have you felt snubbed and ignored? Are you somebody who's always looking around to see if people are treating you the way they should treat you? You should repent by considering that in the grace of Christ, you can begin to sense decreasing disdain since you are a sinner too. You don't disdain other people because you know you're no better. And also, you sense decreasing pain over criticism since you value God's love more than human approval. So reflect on the grace of God in that until you experience this deep humility and a grateful, restful joy. True repentance involves this deep humility. It also involves appropriate boldness. You see, if you're somebody who lives for other people first and foremost rather than the approval of God and you live for the approval of others, you will find yourself avoiding people or tasks that you know you should face. You're anxious and you're worried. You don't want to deal with it. Or you get so pressured you finally blurt it out And you're rash and impulsive. So repent. Change your thinking about yourself and about how much those people mean to you. As you think about God as he truly is. Change your thinking. Repent by considering that in Jesus. There's no cowardly avoidance of hard things. Because Jesus faced evil for us. And. 
There needs to be no anxious or rash behavior since Jesus' death proves that God cares and watches over us. It'll be okay, ultimately. Even if people don't like you. So reflect on the truth about God and about yourself until you have this calm thoughtfulness and this appropriate boldness. True repentance involves deep humility. Appropriate boldness. It involves a fervent love. Do you speak unkindly or think unkindly about other people? Are you impatient or irritable? Have you been self-absorbed, indifferent, inattentive to people? Repent. Change your thinking about yourself vis-a-vis them. And think about the truth that we have in Christ until there's no coldness or unkindness as you think of the sacrificial love of Christ for you. Now you'll be willing to be sacrificially loving for others. And until there's no impatience as you think about his patience with you. And until there's no indifference about other people as you think of how God is infinitely attentive to you. So reflect on God's grace to you until there develops a warmth and affection for others. True repentance involves godly motives. Ask yourself, am I doing what I'm doing for God's glory and the good of others? Or am I driven, motivated by the need for approval, by the love of comfort, by the need for control, by the hunger for acclaim and power? Or am I motivated by the fear of other people? Repent of that. Change your thinking about who God is and who you are by considering how, in Christ's grace, we're provided with what we're looking for in these other things. So reflect on the goodness of God until He becomes your joy and your delight. The Bible says this, put to death. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, which amount to idolatry. And put it to death. Repent. Change your mind that leads to a change of direction. But friends, you'll only do that. We'll only do that if we truly hate that. If we truly despise that. And the fact that we don't means that we like it more than we want to please Christ More than we want Christ. So we really have to ask ourselves, do I want Christ most? Or are these lesser things and persons what I want most? If we're going to experience lasting change, we'll need to recognize the root. Reject it with repentance. And lastly, replace it with rejoicing. Reject it with repentance, but then you replace it, replace it with rejoicing. That is, we gladly and voluntarily replace our idolatrous thoughts and words and behavior with that which pleases the Lord. And we do that not out of duty, but because our hearts are captured by something. No, actually someone much better. Last week in our final message in the book of Philippians, we saw the faithfulness of the Christians in Philippi as they gave of themselves and their resources for the Lord's work. And we were challenged to emulate their example. I remind you of what we saw last week regarding the motivation they had in doing what they did. Rather than guilting or manipulating them into giving, Paul simply reminded them of truth they already knew about the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So Paul, in instructing the Corinthians to be like the Macedonian churches, the Philippian church, in their giving, points them 
to the truth about Christ. Understanding the truth about our salvation and the resulting relationship with the Lord should have a profound impact on our behavior. It should change our heart. That is the seat of our mind, of our will, and our emotion. It restructures our motivations. It restructures our self-understanding and our identity and our view of the world. It changes, in short, our hearts. Behavioral compliance to rules without heart change will be superficial and it will not last. So the Bible says this. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, the grace of God, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. Now, what is this grace of God that teaches us to do this? Just a few verses later, in chapter 3 and verse 5, it says this, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. And when I consider that, if I really believe that, then it teaches me to say no to these lesser things. So think of all the ways that you can say no to ungodliness. You can say no because it will make me look bad. So I don't do bad things because I don't want to look bad and doing bad stuff. You can say no, otherwise I'll be excluded from the social circles I want to belong to. You can say no because then God will not bless me. You can say no because I'll hate myself in the morning and then I'll have low self-esteem. But all of these are really just motives of fear and pride. Now hear this, motives of fear and pride, the very things that lead to sin in the first place. We're just using the same self-centered impulses of our hearts to keep us compliant with these external rules without really changing the heart itself. We're not really doing anything In this, out of love for God. In fact, we're using God to get things. I'll follow those rules as long as they result in self-esteem, prosperity, social approval. And so our deepest joys and hopes rest in those things and not in God. You see, friends, the truth about God, the truth about ourselves, the truth about Christ, if it's really believed then it removes neediness. It removes the need to be constantly respected and appreciated and well-regarded. It removes the need to have everything in your life go well. It removes the need to have power over other people. All of these great deep needs continue to control you only because the concept of a glorious God delighting in you with all his being is just that. It's a concept, but nothing more. Our hearts don't believe it, so they don't operate as if they believe it. Paul is saying, if you really want to change, you have to let the gospel teach you in Titus 2. To train, to discipline, to coach you over time. He's saying in effect this, I can say no because I have an infinitely greater yes in Christ. Thomas Chalmers said this, No one has ever changed a habit just by trying. The heart is so constituted that the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. So we need a new and greater passion. What we need is an overmastering positive passion. And that's why Colossians 3 not only says to put to death the deeds of our sinful nature, but it says this as well. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Almost done. But we have an example of this in the Old Testament. Jacob wanted Rachel as his wife. He asked Laban for her hand 
Laban said, only after you work for me for seven years. Now, you really got to love a girl for that. Here's what the Bible says. Jacob served Laban for seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days because of his love for her. You see, if you are laboring for the Lord, for the Lord, and not your own selfish motives, then it will seem very light indeed. Not something you have to do, something you want to do. So we fall into anger or fear because of some idol has us by the throat. When that happens, friends, look to Jesus like Jacob looked to Rachel. Grace changes us so we do good things for goodness sake and for God's sake, not for something lesser that we get out of it. So here's your take-home truth. Lasting change comes only when we replace the idols of our heart. We've got two more messages in this series. In a couple weeks, the second one. A couple weeks after that, the third one. But keep these thoughts in mind as we pursue these uh, the next few weeks. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your grace that should motivate us to say no and then to say yes to living upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope of the Lord's return. Lord, help us to see that when we have as presenting emotions and behaviors and words, things that we know are displeasing to you, that there is a root to each of those. So, Lord God, help us to identify those root idols in our hearts so that they can be uprooted and replaced with the beauty of Christ and his truth. And as a result, Lord, may we live beautiful lives, lives that are, first of all, pleasing to you and that adorn the gospel so that others see that and want that. And Lord, we will give you the praise and the honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.